I'm Rebecca Achangajuya Bushell, and I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. I'm a former British champion and world number one, but I quit the sport just before the 2012 Olympic Games at just 17. I'll be navigating you through the waters of my swimming world, as I remember it and as it exists now. In hosting this series, I'll also tell you more about my story whilst we explore a question I've often been asked. Why do we swim? In creating this series, I've been privileged to speak to some incredible people, including Saren Jones, Alice Deering, and Colin Jones, many of whom I'm lucky enough to call my friends. All with their own stories and rich, unique relationships to swimming and the water. In a series like this, we can't always use every part of an interview, but we felt like these interviews were too good not to be heard in full. And so, we're releasing these as bonus episodes for you to dive deeper. Saren Jones is an award-winning filmmaker, broadcaster, and podcast producer. She's also one of my best friends, who I've known since we were on poolside together over 15 years ago. Saren was a decorated elite athlete who swam with me for many years. This interview was one of my favorites, part therapy and part exploration. My name is Saren Jones. I am a journalist and podcast producer, but I'm also the co-founder of the Black Swimming Association, which is a charity I set up three years ago now to encourage people from African, Caribbean and Asian backgrounds to be safe in and around water. Where did my swim journey start? Honestly, it depends kind of what day you ask me. Like mm. really the beginning, beginning, I have one memory of being in a lunch centre in Brentford with my dad and just like absolutely screaming the house down because I hated water, I hated swimming. My sister, who's a year older, would go off and swim and I would just like clutch onto my dad to the point where he like literally couldn't breathe because I was just cramming onto his neck. Um, swimming never came naturally at all. But over time, my parents like... They're not quitters, so their kids cannot be quitters. Um, so we just stuck at it, really. And I started competing when I was about eight in Cardiff. That took me through to kind of age group territory till I was about 18. And age group swimming is quite funny. Like, you kind of have to peak, as you know, very early to be mm. a success. And I didn't. So I ended up going to university on scholarship to New York. I swam there for four years. Came back in 2016. And it wasn't until 2020 I decided that I wanted to give back in some way. Swimming had given me so much in my life. Discipline, time management, grit, knowledge, safety. That I wanted to give back to people who look like me because there are hardly any people who look like us in um, competitive swimming. So that's kind of how the BSA came about as well, three years later. As a huge part of your youth, what does swimming mean to you? Wow. Swimming defined me for a very, very long time. I think... I was about eight years old when I realized I started introducing myself as a swimmer. <laughs> I would say, my name is Saren and I'm a swimmer. Like That's what <laughs> came out of my mouth from the age of eight to 22. And when it was time to leave at 22, I had this humongous crisis because I was like, well, who the hell am I now? Like, how do I introduce myself now? Like, right. I had no idea, no purpose. But growing up, swimming was, it was everything in the best and the worst way. Swimming was responsible for the highs of my childhood and definitely responsible for the lows. Um, and I mean that in the sense that, you know, you do make these lifelong friends. You do make these really strong bonds that, you know, a lot of people our age outside of, not just outside of sports, but I do believe outside of swimming because it's such an intense experience. You know, you are training 
twice, maybe three times a day from the age of 10. Yeah. You are physically exposed all the time. And because of all the hours you spend together, you become some sort of family or community, whether you actually get on or not. So it was good in the sense that you did have these really strong, tight-knit relationships, but it was bad in the sense because I almost didn't have a childhood. Like, missing out on what seemed like the biggest deals, you know, prom, 16 birthday parties, sweet sweet 16s, everybody going underage drinking and you couldn't go, and then... Music festivals. Music festivals, group holidays, like, everything. You know, it was a no-go because you just had to be in that pool all the time. I don't regret any of it, but swimming was definitely... It was my life, you yeah. know? Yeah, completely. I mean, I think, you know, when we think about time commitment in sports, swimming is up there probably in the top five 100%. with, you know, gymnastics, mm-hmm. ballet, maybe mm-hmm. ice skating, you know, those sports that are so holistic and absorbing in the way that you have to kind of dedicate almost every waking hour of the day. You yeah. know, swimming is the only sport that uses every muscle in your body. Definitely being absorbed into something like that gives way for a strange environment and ecosystem like the one that you've described. You know, surely there are incredible things to be gained from having that close, tight-knit, family-style connection with these people who you see all the time. What is the kind of downside? What is the darker side of that, you know, very institutionalized, very kind of in-group, out-group way of being. You know, you talk about yourself as the swimmer and you were part of this pack and you were the swimmers. Mm -hmm. You know, that was definitely my experience of being at boarding school. Yeah, Um, totally. And yeah, it means that whilst you're kind of protected in some ways, you're also, there's a line between you and the outside world. It's funny because that, that line between the swimmers and the outside world, yeah, definitely exists. But then there are lines and packs within the swimming pack you know and I found myself on the periphery for quite a long time during my age group career I was really promising in Wales up until I got to 15 and that's kind of when I peaked and couldn't sustain the trajectory of which I was kind of Mm. traveling and for me at least from my perspective that's when I remember that kind of peripheral feeling and placement coming into my life. So you do have this weird space where you're like, okay, well, I'm not excelling at the rate that I'm expected to excel. I can't keep up with these others who are qualifying for 2012 or 2010 Commonwealth Games. But I've also given up too much to be part of the outside world now. Right. So so where does that put me? Like, like where do I stand? And honestly, I'm just so fortunate because most people in that space, they quit. Because like... Because what the hell, why on earth would you end up keeping on this grind of training twice a day every day for what? You know, like you may as well leave, you may as well start drinking, you may as well follow your dreams, do something else, (laughs) whatever, do whatever you want as a 16-year-old. But I was super lucky that my dad went to the US for university. He did his PhD and he played football. So growing up, I always had, you know, at home, if you don't make it to to the top level, if you don't make it to the Olympic Games, there's another route. You there know, was a blueprint for an, that. Yeah, there's another option. And the option was US scholarship. So that was kind of my saving grace. I think about that a lot. Had I not had that avenue, my relationship with swimming would have been so different. I don't even think I'd have, I'd have set up the BSA at that point either. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily understand that you enter into this competitive sport and you can train and train and train three or four hours a day in mm-hmm. the pool, mm-hmm. another hour a day in the gym. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, 
your body betrays you in ways that you aren't necessarily ready for. I think the obvious example of that is injury, right? But a less obvious example, which I guess is coming to the fore more and more, is the fact that young girls, young women hit puberty earlier and more aggressively than their male counterparts. And that can have a huge impact on your performance in the pool. Yeah, that retention rate of girls and swimming when you hit like 14, 15 is like, it's so heartbreaking. As if swimming isn't hard enough as a woman, as a young girl, you know, and then your peers are dropping out because our bodies are changing and it's a male-dominated sport. So the male coaches aren't really talking about it or taking as much time as they should be to talk about it. And as a result of that, girls are dropping like flies. So the ones left standing are more isolated, more confused, you know, maybe more understanding in the sense of their bodies, but that doesn't make the journey easier. Yeah, I mean, in the framework of your developing body, what does it take to become a competitive swimmer? And I just wanted to add to that as well. You're also pretty much naked all the time, right? So that's another level and layer of complication that comes into your own experience of your body as you mature. And as you do become one of the only women and girls developing young women on poolside. Okay. Um, Thick skin and patience Mm. is what I think. Thick skin because I hope things have changed in the age of swimming today, but I don't know. But 10 years ago when it was me, it really wasn't popular to be a muscular girl. And I wasn't even one of the most muscular, but I did have extremely defined shoulders. (laughs) I was literally an upside down triangle. I remember. Like no bunda, no legs, just shoulders. And there were other girls on the team who were, you know, much bigger. And we were all considered, you know, unattractive by the guys because we Mm. didn't have what was considered a conventional effeminate physique with breasts and thighs and whatever was fashionable at the time. We just didn't have that. You know, so thick skin to be able to acknowledge the fact that I love this sport more than I love the way that the world sees me right now through the male gaze. That's thing one. And that is really freaking hard to fight through. You know, I wouldn't judge any girl. I've never judged a girl for giving up swimming at her peak because of her physique, because it's horrible. It's not just having your peers look at you in one way, but it's also having your coaches approach you and say, Maybe we should look at tweaking your diet. Maybe we should look at doing some extra cardiovascular training because we want you to look like this. We think your performance will benefit if you looked like this. You've got these two like opposing pressures. And then the patience thing is just about being patient to be okay with yourself. You know, Mm. it took me years to be, to love my body. And that didn't kick in until I went to university and I started lifting weights. And I had a male, well, female coach as well, but I had a male coach who was very empowering. You know, he talked to us about how strong is beautiful. You know, there is beauty and strength, there's beauty and muscle, there's beauty and sculpture. If you're fortunate enough to have the support that can kind of help you have that patience and, mm. and, and come to that realization at some point, because everyone gets to it at a different point, then I think you're very lucky. And I think I'm one of those people. You know, Saren and I actually came up in swimming together. We're the same age. A lifetime ago. A lifetime ago. Hey, I'm not that old. (laughs) And we were on poolside at the same time. And, you know, you're just talking about your body as a an object in between these kind of two diametrically opposing positions. Mm -hmm. Really, really took me back to poolside. I... 
I didn't hit puberty until I was 16. I didn't start my period until I was 16. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Because my body fat was so low. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of that is genealogical, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was mm -hmm. having black genes, being mixed race, being half black from a genealogical perspective means that, you know, we have those fast twitch fibers, you know, we have that kind of metabolism that's going to kick in and make us kind of naturally in a lot of ways more athletic, mm. in a lot of ways more muscular. Mm. I mean, I was a rake when I was a kid. I was... You were... You know what? I was actually telling one of our friends the other day that I remember when we first met, I remember just like being in awe of you. Not just because you were the only other black girl on deck that day, but like because you were just so muscular compared to me. I was... Do you remember how skinny I was? You were I tiny. was so skinny. And I remember going up, <laughs> seeing my parents, and they were like, oh my goodness, another black girl, and there's another black girl. And my dad was like maybe we should get you in the gym. Like, maybe you need to start, you know, because, because yeah, you're very, very small. And I know also you were a breaststroker, so naturally breaststrokers were kind of a bit a bit more muscular in those days. And mm. I was like a flyer. But yeah, I mean, you just had this incredibly athletic physique at a very young age. And, and that, it served you well. Yeah, no, it did. It did. But as you said, it served me well because... I wanted my body to do certain things in the water. Yeah, and there were so many stakeholders involved in my success who also wanted my body to be able to do that. They needed your body to do that. Absolutely. But as a young girl, as a young woman, I hated having massive shoulders, huge thighs, no boobs, no bum. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was this really, really fraught and kind of tense position. And I think for some reason, it was definitely amplified because of the color of my skin. And I can't put my finger mm. exactly on why that was. But I think that it probably comes back to a lot of misogynoir and adultification that young 100%. black women face because we're seen as, I don't know, more aggressive. Fundamentally, it's probably more animal in some way. There's something really interesting about that because, and it's quite hard to put into words, but remembering how athletic you were. And I remember you said you, you mentioned your thighs. I remember your thighs, like, because I didn't have thighs. I said, this girl has thighs. But like, I think if you're an outsider and you look at somebody as athletic as you were when you were when you were that age, right? There's an assumption that, okay, she must be so strong. She must lift all these weights. And then I think the build of that assumption is to continue to just load weight onto this athlete, not just the literal weight in the gym, but every other aspect of weight that comes hand in hand with swimming. And then learning about, you know, your training regime compared to mine, like that's exactly what was going on. You know, you guys literally had a swimmer's life and then some, mm. you know, mm. being in boarding school is so much more intense, at least kind of where I was, you know, we had our club life, which was very much all consuming, but you would step outside and you'd have hours at home and you would go to school and you wouldn't see your swimmers for eight hours of the day. But it's a really interesting point that you brought up. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking about my experience of being in a kind of mini high performance center when I was so young. So That's I went exactly to... exactly what it is. Yeah, so I went to a... I guess a sports school. It was like a kind of private school down in Devon. A sports school. I would say the sports school. Millfield and Plymouth Leander with these sports schools these back sports in the schools. day. Yeah, Plymouth College. Who have we produced? Henry Slade, mm -hmm. Tom Daly. Yeah. Handful of Olympic gold medalists. Ruta Melatute. Exactly. Yourself. Ben Proud. Ben Proud, of mm. course. My goodness, yeah. So, 
you know, we were kind of children in whose parents, I guess, had kind of been promised the world and who'd opted into this, you know, I was doing weights when I was 13, 14 years old. That is so messed. I have no arches in my feet because they all collapse. The tendons across the top <laughs> of my feet are fucked. That is like you are asking for stunted growth. Complete. I mean, it's why I'm so short. <laughs> and also because we didn't sleep enough. Yeah, it was a really weird time. And actually that leads me on to something that I think is really important as we look forward, right? As I said, we've known each other for a long time, actually mm -hmm. closer to 20 than 10 years now. Wild. I know. We were two of only a handful of black and brown people, swimmers on poolside back then. What do you think would have made the difference for us? I'm thinking of the handful of black swimmers who were on deck. And just for context that, you know, we wouldn't see each other often, right? It was like once or twice a year at right. British Nationals. Mainly guys. I would have loved for there to be an older black female swimmer. And I would have I would have loved her to come to me and just been like, you're doing good. Mm. Like, you're okay. That's what I really needed. Because we didn't really know. We were like in it together. Like, we were kind of like just winging it, training hard, keeping our head down because that's what we were told to do. But some sort of like reassurance and acknowledgement um, acknowledgement acknowledgement that I was black that I still am black but I was very much black back then and that was something I think I really didn't think about or shied away from right because I just wanted to be a swimmer like everybody else I know my blackness made me stand out in Cardiff you know whether it was like overtly or covertly there were always comments and I always got the feeling that if I wasn't swimming fast, are people assuming that it's because my bones are heavier? Like, mm. I've heard talk about it. Like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is as far as I can go. I would have loved to just have, you know, a black woman. Our future selves, basically. Yeah. We need to get back on poolside. I know. Tell those kids they're doing all right. Exactly. You know, I remember doing so much press, especially around the time I became British champion. And I remember one article and they wrote, she speaks with a cut glass British accent. And I think at the time there was, you know, maybe not necessarily a pride, but just a kind of sense of relief that, you know, at least my kind of Englishness, my Britishness was being acknowledged, that I wasn't being placed outside the frame of, you know, this country I was in and this this environment mm. that I was trying to fit into. And now I look back on it and I just, you know, I didn't see it for like the bloody racism that it was. Yeah. We were really children. Mm -hmm. What do you want to see in the future of competitive swimming? More swimmers just kind of confident in themselves. The cliche answer is like more black swimmers on deck. But really, that's that's going to take so long to happen. Mm. You know, that's not up to charities like the BSA. That's up to national governing bodies, you know, and club teams, regional teams, national teams, you know. But if I were to go back to Sheffield where we would have our British nationals, right, and I would go on deck and I would see the handful of black swimmers, I don't think there are more necessarily, but I know of a few who are doing very well. I would love to see them. And what would really make me feel good is to see them just know who they are. I think I just didn't know who I was. Um, in swimming and a huge part of that was because of my blackness it was such a confusing marriage so just to see like one black swimmer be like yep yeah, I know who I am 
this is me. I'm proud of who I am. And this is the direction I want to go in. That is it. Mm. Yeah, that's really humbling. You know, being mixed race, you sit in this strange liminal in-between space in so many parts of your life anyway. Ugh, all the time. And being on poolside, being a swimmer, being a black swimmer, it's it's so hard to, you know, disentangle that from being a kind of individual because those labels, they don't go away and they're hard to shake and they're also hard to own. Yeah, I completely agree. I would have loved and I would love for people to be more vocal about that fact in competitive swimming today. You know, I'm a swimmer and I'm black and it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Far from it. I think that would be enough. Before we move on to talking a little bit more about the BSA, mm -hmm. I just want to take you to a little bit of an experiential, visceral place. Okay. What does swimming feel like for you? Can you describe the feeling of being in the water? Physically, it feels like a dream in the sense that like, you know when you dream something and it's just so sweet and like perfect to the point where in your dream you're like, am I dreaming? Mm. That's what swimming feels like to me. It always has. Um, and that turning point for me was quite... It struck me quite hard. I've always been naturally extremely competitive. And I remember having trials for the City of Cardiff Swimming Club and and we kind of started right at the bottom, you know, right at the bottom tier, me and my sister. And I was really bad. I was really, really bad. We had this, like, the first warm-up we ever did was four lands front crawl and there were four girls in, in my lane, my sister being one of them. And they were all too nervous to go first. So I was like, I'll go first. So I dove in, swam these four lands, and by the end of the four lands, I was at the back of the pack. Like, they all overtook me. That's kind of how my swimming... My love for swimming really started. I just don't like being bad at things. And I was way better at other sports, but there was something about swimming that gave, that had that sweetness to it that like gymnastics didn't have, netball didn't have, hockey didn't have, track didn't have. Swimming was just like a whole other world. Literally, you felt like you were immersed in this other place. It was a form of escapism. It was... Therapy, not that I knew what therapy was at the time, but it mm. definitely served as therapy. And it just made me feel good. Yeah, no, I second that. I think it does. As soon as I got over the fear, I think swimming has always felt easier than walking. You know, it's being in a place that makes the most sense to me. I think that's what swimming feels like. Random question. Mm. How often did you cry in your goggles? Oh, girl. <laughs> Because it's right, it's such a safe space. Like, and it's a common thing in swimming that like you put your goggles on. If you're having a rough day, you put these goggles on, you dive in and you cry and no one will be the wiser. I used to cry for everything. It's funny because I think actually I definitely stopped crying at one point in my swimming career. And I think that I can now pinpoint that as being the point that it was or it started to be over for me. Oh my gosh. Um, because it stopped being safe to feel that release and experience it. You know, this sounds really traumatic, but it's <laughs> it's actually quite comforting. You sit behind the film of these kind of mirrored goggles mm -hmm. and, you know, you swim up and down this pool and you're upset and you 
are able to release that feeling mm -hmm. into the water. And by the end of the session, it's not there anymore. By the end of the session, if you've if you've cried right, you could be a new kid coming out of that pool. Like you could have <laughs> a whole layer just shed off from mm. a two and a half hour session. That serotonin. Yeah, totally. That dopamine hit differently. Beyond our time in the pool and our history with swimming, as you've alluded to and spoken to a little bit, one of the founding members of the Black Swimming Association, and you've recently just won Project of the Year from the National Lottery. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. Can you tell me a little bit about the BSA, you know, a kind of simple top line mission statement, but what, what do you do? What's your aim? The BSA has been set up to encourage people, especially from Black and Asian communities in the UK, to be safe in and around water. It's all about drowning prevention and water safety awareness. It's funny to go from a conversation about us being competitive swimmers and doing all of this training to a conversation about the high levels of drowning in Black and Asian communities yeah. in the UK, right? And all around the world. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why those rates are so high? There are so many factors, you know. Um, we got asked this a lot, you know, in media, um, events, you know, just kind of the background of the charity. If we kind of like narrow it down and look at like the British perspective, mm. you have factors like, okay, let's start with accessibility. Pools are not that accessible. I mean that in the way that the best facilities are in the nicest neighbourhoods. They cost money to access them. Once you get to these facilities, they may not cater to people who are non-white. So, for example, women who are Muslim who want to be in women-only classes, even women who are Muslim, women who just want to be in women-only classes or people who, you know, identify as non-binary or as gender fluid and they want to have a safe space. Traditionally, pools didn't offer these kind of windows for people who just wanted to be with their own. Accessibility also kind of branches into swimwear because swimwear has only now started to change. It's been amazing to see like how swimwear has really started to evolve mm. with the times. You know, now we've got, you know, oversized swimming caps for black hair or longer hair. We've got modest swimwear, but still there's the issue of financing because the modest swimwear is really expensive. It's great that it exists, but, you know, can the average person spend £125 on an Adidas waterproof hijab and leggings and a top that she feels comfortable in? That's a very big ask, you know. You've got accessibility, you've got finance, you've got culture, which I've already kind of mentioned, but hair is a huge part of that. And that's something that I more personally decided to investigate and explore when I was a journalist, because hair is the reason my older sister quit swimming. She wanted to have what she called good hair. We know that chlorine is more damaging on Afro hair than it is on non-Afro hair. We know that black women spend nine times more than their white counterparts on hair services and products, whether mm. that is literal products that we use every day or wigs, weaves, braids, locks, relaxer, you name it. Are you going to get into chlorinated water for 30 minutes to ruin something that costs you a lot of money that will last a very long time? Most likely not. But then you also have present day issues that are also affecting people in these communities from getting into the water. You know, we have COVID and the, the aftermath of COVID, COVID exacerbated these pool closures. You know, pools that did exist in black and brown areas in the UK aren't opening up again. And those that are opening up 
are struggling because the cost of living, because these larger centres can't afford to heat the pools, let alone mm. keep the centres open. So there are all these factors and it's such a nuanced issue. I haven't even mentioned like the whole social element of it, you know, the behaviours and attitudes people have towards swimming, aquaphobia, myths of being heavy boned, um, near drowning experiences, um, people first, second, third generation here where it was just not a priority to learn how to swim. The priority was to learn English, to assimilate, to get an education. The more I think about it, it's such a humongous task to tackle that we've taken on at the BSA. But we're doing it because nobody really did, Yeah, you know? It's the fact that every summer I switch on the TV and there's been a heat wave and somebody's drowned. That person always looks like us. Always. And it's not coincidental. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, academic evidence because such records aren't actually kept. But it's something that we decided we just didn't want to see anymore because, like, why is it that people like us don't have that knowledge of what to do in an emergency. This isn't about kind of churning out more black Olympians. It's about making sure people can go out and enjoy bodies of water and make it home. That's so powerful. And I think the picture you've painted really illustrates just how sport, the institution of sport, it replicates the same structures that we see in society mm-hmm. every day, right? That those people who are marginalized because of their minority status in this instance because of ethnicity um, and race, have worse outcomes. And the reality is that when it comes to sport, swimming can be deadly. And the work of the BSA, I think, cannot be understated specifically here in this country where we have the resources to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore. It's been really humbling this last year. We offer kind of water safety classes in Hackney every Thursday. Um, where we kind of have about 16 participants on average. As teachers, we get into the water with the participants and we just teach them for five consecutive weeks about water safety. So we teach them how to feel the water, Mm. what that feels like. We teach them how your body is a life-saving vessel. Different parts of your body can do different things. We teach you about how to uh, breathing, floating. And it's all kind of like combined with enjoyment. And then as a byproduct, a lot of our swimmers learn how to swim. But a lot of these people live in Hackney. Hackney has a ton of canals everywhere. You know, they live by water. They go, they go back home to Jamaica. They go to the sea or they go to Barbados and whatever, you know. But like they don't know how to be safe. And even when there are these facilities like, you know, Britannia Leisure Centre, we had one woman come into one of our sessions once and she said, I've lived in this borough my entire life. I've never set foot in this pool because I feel like it's, it wasn't made for me. So we also try to empower our participants to know where their local pools are and to feel as if, you know, they have every right to be there. They have every right to enjoy the luxuries that they have to offer because it is in their neighbourhood. There's a lot of work to be done, but it's been a very, a very powerful year. You know, you guys are approaching this from a very practical, very hands-on perspective, but I also know that the BSA is seeking to advocate on the policy side as well. And with that in mind, you're undertaking some research. Yes pioneering research that hasn't happened before as you mentioned records aren't kept in this way can you tell us a little bit about that yeah exactly so we obviously like you said we have the hands-on approach that we do with the together we can initiative that's what our water safety program is called but we also have the policy and advocacy side of the charity so we have a fantastic research and insights team 
that has commissioned a project around the attitudes and behaviours specifically that adults have towards swimming. So this is unpicking those notions of aquaphobia, of being disengaged, really understanding why and like where this came from, just to really get to the bottom of like, okay, whatever comes out of this research, we can say, we've done this, we've investigated this, this can no longer be used as a barrier anymore. Because so many of us in the community use these reasons. I don't want to say excuses as if they're invalid because they're not. But a lot of people hide behind these. A lot of people don't get into the water because they have heard they have heavy bones. Therefore, they believe they have heavy bones. A lot of people won't get in the water because their mum told them water safety is staying away from the water. So they will not get in water. Mm. This isn't good enough anymore. You know, it's not because we're human. Like, you know, your child or your nephew or your niece is going to be curious one day or is going to be drinking one day and might be by water or is going to be on a jet ski one day because of peer pressure And then what happens? Like, we can't afford to keep recycling this narrative anymore. And rolling the dice on people's lives. Totally. Totally. No one deserves that. No one deserves to lose somebody prematurely because of a skill that everybody should have. This is life and death we're talking about. Swimming is the only sport that can actually save your life. So we're not a learn to swim clinic. We're not, you know, going to teach you how to be the next Alice Deering. This is just about you knowing how to be safe so you can pass that information on to your loved ones. You know, I would really struggle with this when people ask me after my swimming career, you know, being the first black woman to swim for Great Britain, you know, why don't black people swim? But I think it's definitely put upon people and you must feel this way enormously, you know, to have the answers to these questions that you've now shown us are so complex and conflated by a myriad of different reasons. When you have your community sessions mm-hmm. um, and you're engaging the community in these water safety practices, what's the one thing that has the most impact and that shifts the needle in terms of how they feel in the water, how they go away feeling? Ooh. What's the one thing? Trust. Trust in themselves and trust in us, actually. We have a lot of people who come through our sessions who cry out of pure, genuine fear. And once they learn to A, trust us, that we are not going to let them drown because people assume immediately they're going to drown, even though the water level that we teach at is one metre, 0.09. Very shallow. I'm five foot three. This comes up to my breasts, Mm. right? There's still that fear of drowning. Once they learn to trust us, the teachers, once they learn to trust the water, because as you know, like... When we were kids, at least for me, like the, the, the lesson that I always got told and I, I carry on is the water's your friend. If you fight the water, the water will always win. Like you have to be good to the water. And once they learn to trust themselves, that's when the switch flips. That's when it's like, okay, I can do this. So it all comes down to trust. But getting there, that's the hard part. I do hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Please go back and check out the other episodes in the series as we journey to the heart of swimming. I'll see you next time.